Our Father and our God, we are thankful that we can praise you all day long. Thank you that even when we don't see or feel that you're working, you, you never stop, you never stop working. Thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we come before you this morning. What a privilege to come in your presence, to come in your house. Father, help us to have open ears and open our eyes to see your glory. That, Lord, you would be lifted up high, that the world would see that you are the Savior and that we need you, Lord. Thank you again for just your goodness to us. You've been so good, so good to each one of us, Father. You've brought us here this morning. Father, I pray that we would be just always giving thanks to you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thank you, worship team. And uh, take a few minutes to extend a right hand of fellowship to each other. Okay, thank you so much. I would like to thank you and welcome each one of you, especially those joining us for the first time. Welcome to Maranatha. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to welcome new folks joining us. Um, if you are new to our congregation, we have these yellow sheets out there on uh, the welcome desk and the lobby. So uh, some of them actually in front of the pew in front of you, so if you want to connect with us, if you have a prayer request or something that, uh, or if you've been a regular attendant but you moved or changed your email address or your phone number, feel free to update that and fill these yellow sheets and then you can drop, either drop them on the offering uh, box between the two double doors there or at the welcome desk. And of, uh, talking about the offering, I uh, just want to make sure that we all know that we have an offering basket back there so that we are giving it to the Lord as uh, we worship him in giving. So at the end of the service, uh, if the Lord leads you to give back to, to him from the burdens he's given us, the offering basket is there for uh, all of us. Another thing that uh, would, I think that is, uh, yep, okay. Um, the Chimangas who are missionaries with Ethnos 360, they were here a few, I think it was um, in December the 18th, I think, and uh, they shared their ministry, if you remember them. Um, Ethnos 360 is former new tribes, and they are going to the Democratic Republic of Congo and they are missionaries that we support. So they have these uh, pamphlets. They are at the welcome desk with prayer requests. They are leaving on Thursday, March the 2nd, flying out of Chicago into Addis Ababa, 
and then from Addis Ababa into Malawi, and then Malawi into Lubumbashi, which, where they'll be st uh, stationed there. This, uh, so if you'd like to pick up this and be in prayer for them, they have 18 luggages to check in, and I just can't imagine how they're going to do the connection. So pray for them as they uh, move over to where the Lord has called them. The men's retreat is March the 10th and the 11th at Arrowhead Bible Camp. The theme is Ambassadors for Christ, and the cost is $60. So please register or sign up uh, in our website by March 1. And then, maybe, I don't know if I'll understand, I should have asked this, but Maranatha Valentine Banquet, there are pictures of those who participated and those who are working behind scenes. So if you, uh, please connect with Cody for these details. I think that's all I have. At this time, I just also want to introduce myself. Sorry, I forgot. My name is Otieno. I'm one of uh, members of the mission team here at Maranatha, and it's a privilege to be part of what God is doing in the world as you give to the missions, uh, you give your offering. Some of that offering supports missionaries like the Chimangas and many other missionaries that Maranatha supports. And what a privilege that we can be part of what God is doing in the world. So this morning we have one of our own that I am so excited to introduce. A man that is, walks with the Lord, that's so faithful, that uses wrestling uh, in campuses, to in universities, to minister, to get those young university students to use the word of God to wrestle. So I want to introduce my brother, John Peterson, to come up here and just share with us his ministry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's been, uh, believe it or not, in October it will be 50 years that this congregation has been supporting Nancy and I. Well, 49 for Nancy. And we are so grateful. Um, Pastor has been working us through the book of Mark, the school of discipleship, right? So I thought I would give you some examples of what that looks like over 50 years. And so that you don't think that I'm up here just bragging, um, you know what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. Amen. So neither those who plant nor those who water are anything, but only God who caused the growth. In the early 2000s, one of the guys that I spent five years with, uh, as Otieno said, we were wrestling with God's word at, at the University of Minnesota. He came on staff with Athletes in Action after that. He and his wife spent five years uh, ministering on campuses down in Puerto Rico. And now he's out at uh, Brown University, which is a, one of the, uh, what, Ivy League schools. He's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, Kevin Steinhaus. <laughs> I don't know if I... Well, actually, I was out there about five years ago. So it's pretty ironic that now this kid is is working with those guys on that campus. 
There's one example. Nancy and I have had the privilege of discipling five little ones who are now much bigger. And you all know, some of you know Justin. uh, I guess he's the leader of the men's ministry here, is he? Uh, (laughs) So go to that men's retreat. Um, Justin's made a lot of trips with me. This summer, uh, he wasn't on this trip, but another fellow and I, who I spent a lot of time with, we're in Mongolia. And uh, we saw how a young guy named Devin Bande is now on staff with Athletes in Action. He is discipled by a guy that I met and worked with in all the trips that I was in Mongolia in the late 90s and early 2000s. This young guy, Justin, made a special connection with him when we were on a trip in Kazakhstan a couple years ago. And now here he is discipling athletes who are discipling other athletes. So God, God gives us all kinds of opportunities. This, this man that I was with in Mongolia, uh, he went with me the first three years I was working in Austria. We would travel to Eastern European countries. He was wrestling, training for the 84 Olympics. And um, so I was discipling him, both wrestling with God's word and then getting on the mat with him, wrestling. He didn't make the Olympic team. He was one short of it. But God got a hold of his heart. He spent 15 years in Russia until he got kicked out. All the trips that I made to Russia, he and I kind of traveling around like Saul and Barnabas. (laughs) God gave us many opportunities to share Christ. And then he spent five years in Mongolia discipling Suke, who I had started with, planted, plowed some ground. (laughs) And then Suke is spending that time with Devin Bande. There you have it. That's discipleship. And it happens in this church. This last week, I got a call from a guy we talked for an hour. Uh, Gary Moore, you know, some of you know him as a guy who's helping people all the time. He connected me with this guy, Phil, down in Eau Claire. I've only visited him a few times, not enough evidently, because he called me up and we talked for an hour. And God is starting to get to this guy's heart. He's finally starting to get it. And I can't stop without saying... The discipleship group that I'm in here, um, I asked them to pray a month ago about one of the guys at the University of Minnesota who was really struggling. I mean, God just pulled the, the rug of wrestling out from underneath him. And so he's avoided me for two months. This last week, I called him again, and he finally picked up. We talked for over an hour. Tomorrow, Lord willing, pray for him. We're planning to meet at the coffee shop. Neither one of us drink coffee. Well, he did, but he stopped two weeks ago. <laughs> I'll, we'll have some tea together. And so, just thank you. Thank you for praying. Thank you for being such a, a, a supporting group for us in the work that we do. I could talk about the guys from Eau Claire, who Justin worked with when they were at Spooner and Barron, and now they're leading the Bible study at Eau Claire. That's happening at each one of these universities I go to. So thank you again. Pastor, I'll take the whole morning if you let me.
Mr. Stanton. Since we're talking about the ministry on campuses, I want to take some time here and talk about what the Lord, has anybody heard of what's going on in Asbury University? Okay. Yes. Is it, it's not working? Is it working now? We got a new thing. There we go. All right. So with John up here talking about universities, I want this to be a time of encouragement to some of you because some of us, we get, we look at what's happening in the world, we look at what's happening in the schools, and some of us are just like, oh, it's just, everything's going to hell in a handbag kind of a thing, right? Something wonderful is happening in the U.S. and has hit the national and international news. A remarkable ongoing season of spiritual renewal at Asbury University. The university's called it an outpouring. The seminary across the street has called it an awakening, and the internet has picked it up and called it a revival. At an ordinary chapel service on February 8th, the preacher encouraged the students to live out the commands and demands of Romans chapter 12. Youth group, what are you guys going through right now? Romans chapter what? 12. This is not the first time this has happened. Robert Coleman in his book, talking about the Asbury president of 1970, quotes, give me one divine moment when God acts, and I say that moment is far superior to all the human efforts of man throughout the centuries. Let me say that again. Because here's the problem. We want to kind of work up a revival instead of just allowing the Lord and pray one down. Does that make sense? Give me one divine moment when God acts, and I say that moment is far superior to all the human efforts of man throughout the centuries. Kinlaw speaks of a tradition that waits expectantly for the initiative of the living God to make himself known in the power of holiness and his own schedule. I'm going to read this. is from Christianity Today. This is a, a, a magazine that was very popular. I don't know if it's still popular now. Speaking of my experience in 1995. Authentic renewal. So far, meetings exhibit no signs of orchestration or planning. Milo Lindell, executive president at Trinity College of Deerfield, Illinois, 1995. The activity there is not a display of emotional exuberance or sensational demonstration, but the reverent, quiet move of God's spirit. It hit my campus in 95, and we had about a week's worth of primarily confession and worship only. It got to the point on the second day where myself and, and Daniel were like, okay, there's too much confession going on where it's getting serious about confessing sins. We separate the guys and the girls. Audience numbered at Wheaton College. I don't know if you knew this, Tony, it hit Wheaton College that year. 900 students, March 19th, gathered. It lasted for 12 hours. One of the professors said, I've studied revivals and awakenings for 15 years. This bears all the marks of the beginning of a deep, genuine work of God. Howard Payne University is where it started, and they sent students out. Even though Asbury College has kind of closed the doors to have people off campus coming to visit what's going on in all the news media, many students still desire God at Asbury. And now other campuses 
It's spilling out. I saw a video of someone down in Texas. They're baptizing people where the water isn't frozen. (laughs) But other colleges and seminaries are experiencing their own moments of awakening. This is real. Because God's real, right? So John, what are some of your thoughts about what's going on in Asbury, what you've seen? How can we be praying? Well, I might be, share another example with you just three weeks ago. We, one of the blessings of COVID is it's given us more opportunity to minister through online stuff. And we do a Bible study every Wednesday. Our AIA team guys and some coaches are in that. One of the coaches connected me with one of his uh, athletes. And, and this guy was troubling. Uh, he was troubled because he was going to these special meetings at his church. And they were Friday and Saturday. And Saturday, Friday night, um, they talked about how we, we need to get out and talk to people about Jesus. And um, he, he was troubled because he's got to wrestle tomorrow. Am I thinking more about wrestling than I'm thinking about Jesus? Should I wrestle? Or should I be out there learning more about how I can talk to people about Jesus? And so I shared with him, well, you know, you can do your wrestling as an act of worship to God. That's Romans 1. Mm -hmm. Romans 12, 12, 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. And so he wrestled. He lost because coach put him up in another weight class. But he he came off the mat. He's all discouraged. And coach said, well, you can glorify God when you lose too. And now he started a Bible study with his, with, with, on that campus, something he probably wouldn't have done. I don't know if that's an influence of what's going on, mm. but yeah, God's working. He is. He is. Recently, uh, Pastor Aaron, myself, and Andre went to an event where they were trying to, I felt like on a human level, conjure up revival instead of just allowing the Lord in humility, in confession, do his work. And there's a difference there, right? How many would love to see the Lord work like that in your life? He can and he does. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take time as a church to pray for the different universities that the Lord's moving. This is beautiful. I remember when it happened to my campus in 95, we shut down the campus and we had... A couple days of no classes, I enjoyed that part. But we were in the chapel nonstop praising, crying, confessing sin, and just getting our hearts right with God. To me, that wasn't revival. Revival is bringing something that was once dead alive. First, it's renewal. Then out of that comes sharing Jesus, which is then revival. Bar shutting down. If you want to read church history, especially in America, some of the Great Awakenings, that's, that's revival. Now there's a renewal happening. And we want that to be in our families. Amen? In our hearts. But it takes humility, repentance, and a focus on God. So here's what I would like to do. I'd like to take time and just pray for the universities pray for our campuses, and even pray for our area too. Amen? So with that, I'd like to have Darren Cox come up, Pastor Tony come up, and the four of us are going to pray. So if you would join us in prayer and just say, God, we know that you're moving. Amen? 
And we want you to move even in our hearts. And if that would cause us to be broken, oh, what a beautiful place that would be, right? Here's what I wrote at the end here. I said, would you pray with us for God's move in their hearts as they hunger for him? And we bless what God is doing for the sake of this ongoing generation. I can't wait to see in years what's going to happen out of this. And may the Spirit begin to do the same work in our hearts. Amen? Amen. So let's take some time and pray. You guys pray and I'll I'll close. Father, we thank you for this divine moment that you've given us an opportunity to to witness with what's taking place at Asbury and these college campuses around the world. And God, I'm encouraged by the fact that you have appointed this next generation for such a time as this to be able to go out into our world and and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I know as a parent I fear what my children are stepping into, but you don't fear that. You've created them for this time, for this moment. And God, we praise you for the work that you're doing in and through these young people, that you have reserved for yourself followers of Jesus who have not bowed their knee to what the world has to offer. So God, we thank you for the impact that confession has, that all great movements begin as we hit our knees and attempt to be an obedient people who not only love you and follow you, but bring you glory in how we live our lives. And God, that is our prayer for our children and for these young adults, these men and women stepping into the world, that by their obedience and by their love for you, they would be an irresistible light that draws people to the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, in Second Chronicles, when Solomon finished building your temple, you said these words, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there will be no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will he- hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Lord God, we pray that this truly would take place in our land, in our country, and spread across the world, that there would be a genuine renewal and revival as you move among the hearts of people, that you would lead them to genuine repentance, agreeing with you that our sins are awful, that we are wicked, that we are twisted and messed up, and that we desperately need a Savior. So I pray that we would live in a countercultural way, that we would be encouraged here in Rice Lake and Barron County um, about what's going on in our country. We thank you for your movement, and we pray that it would spread among the different uh, college campuses like a wildfire, not something that's conjured up, not something that's manufactured by human efforts. We pray against that. We pray against those people who want to commandeer this genuine work that you are doing and make it into something about them. And so we pray that you would shut that down and that you would truly move, that there would be repentance and confession and a recommitment to live in this countercultural way, to follow after you, and that the fruit from what you're doing now would bear fruit for generations to come. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Yes, Father, thank you. Thank you that you tell us not to be anxious 
but to pray about everything with thanksgiving. When we come to you with humble hearts, as these men have just prayed, confessing our sin, you, you can work in and through us. You're the one who has to change hearts. So, Father, we, we ask that you would <clears throat> embolden <clears throat> young people throughout our country, throughout the world, <clears throat> to turn from sin and, and, and not swallow the, the world's uh, philosophy, but fight the good fight of faith. Thank you that you defeated sin, Satan, and the flesh on the cross. So keep doing your work in and through us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Father God, we just humbly come before you. And we ask that you would heal our land. And we've been praying for this. And we see that you're doing it. And forgive some of us who are maybe critical and cynical, like, oh, that's not a real revival there. And, oh, they're not doing it the right way. God, you're moving. And Lord, I I pray that you would move here in our county. For three years, I met early in the morning with pastors once a week and we'd pray for revival. We did it for three years and then COVID hit and we stopped and we didn't start it up, although we still meet Wednesdays and we pray. God, do your work. We are your vessels. Lord, this is a special time in America. We pray a blessing over these students who are being impacted by you as they have true repentance and true confession. And out of that, you awaken something within them. And I, 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 I experienced that myself. Many will go into missionary work. <clears throat> Many will go to do your work wherever you call them and impact this world. We pray for a global touch of God because of what's happening here. I pray for the universities that are being impacted this down in Texas and other places. May this not stop. I even pray for this Jesus revival movie that's out. Jesus, I forget what it's called, but there's a movie out that's, that's popular. I'm going tonight to see it. Your timing is perfect. People are getting excited about you. And forgive us for being fuddy-duddy. We're just going to church, doing our thing. Help us get excited for Jesus. This we pray in your precious name. Amen. 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 Let's give the Lord a praise offering for what he's doing. Yeah, this is for such a time as this. I love this. This is great. I have no problem cutting down on this so we can even if we need to pray more, pray more, amen? Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 12. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for covering a section out of Pastor 12, chapter 12 last week. I was able to go watch my daughter play basketball for the weekend. It was, it was fun. We are in this series with Christ in the School of Discipleship, in which we've, I've kind of broken down into two par- three parts. The first part was Messiahship, chapters 1 through 7. Then 
chapters 8 until probably chapter, yeah, chapter 10, it was, excuse me, more discipleship. Now we're back to Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, I I let you know, we want to focus, and my prayer as we go through these parts, that we would meet Jesus. Not just, and here's part of the problem. We know these stories. We do, we get kind of fuddy-duddy like, yeah, he went to the cross. Oh, here we go, here's his prayer. And I I don't want that to be me. I want to meet Jesus. And much of chapter 12 here is filled with debates in the temple, with the leading religious people who turn out to be the enemies of God. And we see here they try to trick Jesus, and Jesus throws them a couple curveballs, not to trick them, but to expose them. And today we're going to look at five, I'm going to cruise through this here, five different stories. We're going to begin the story as Jesus, you know, interacts with, with people, he gives a parable. We'll see the first part, and if you don't mind putting up that screen, or the, the next slide here, um, we're going to do the first part, the, the trick and, and the trap. We're going to cruise to that, see what they were trying to do, what Jesus was doing, and then we're going to see what Jesus does as he responds to these, and he shines forth. So because of time, we're not going to read through every story here. We'll begin with chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 here. The wicked tenants. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, to the ones who were renting it, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another. That one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Some of the parables that Jesus gave, as we have read through in the the Gospel of Mark, sometimes we kind of don't know what's going on. And even those who hear it, Jesus says it, so they're kind of like, what was that about? And then he pulls the disciples, here's the story. Here's what I want you to know. But this one, as we will see, is very obvious. We know that Jesus knew in advance about his upcoming death. And this was a good time to expose the hearts of the religious leaders of the law. And the ones who heard this right away would know of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is a famous story about this vineyard and the owner. How many leaders would go against God and the vineyard has become unfaithful and they've produced an unfruitful vineyard. So hearing this parable, the religious leaders already knew like, oh, I know what this is connected with. Isaiah chapter 5. And the 
tenant farmers were like the ones who don't really own the land. They just rent from it. In this parable, they treat the employer very bad. We don't know if the people who first heard this connected it right away with Jesus. Now, obviously, we know this is about Christ, and we'll see this here in a moment when Jesus goes on, but we know all his beloved son. We know this is Jesus. But when Jesus shares the story here, which we'll come back to, he wants to expose them. Thank you. Now we move to a coin, loyalty. Take a look at verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It is right, so in truth, is, so here's their question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or should we not? Now, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They were the ones who did not like the Roman Empire at all. They didn't like what was going on. They would say tyranny all the time. They didn't like the Roman rule over the Jewish people. And they devised this plot, this plan to kind of trick and trap Jesus. First, they stroke his ego. Oh, you're a man of integrity. Oh, yes, I am. You aren't swayed by others. No, I'm not. Or kind of like this. Even though you don't get buttered up by people, we're going to butter you up, right? Their question really comes down to the issue, can someone pay taxes and still be loyal to God? How much of the government should we be involved in and in their minds, if Jesus answers whatever he says, it's going to put Jesus in a bad place. So they want to trip him up in his words. If he says yes to this, he would support the government and be like, oh yeah, pay taxes, support the government. And thus, those Jews who are under the oppression of the Romans, the victims, he would demoralize them. Or if he would say no... Then he would be this diehard revolutionist like, forget the government. And then he could be arrested for treason. So they wanted to trap Jesus. All right, let's go to the next one. The resurrection. I got res up there because resurrection would take up too much space on there. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up her offspring. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married, died without any leaving any children. The second one married the widow and also died, leaving no other. So all these guys are marrying the same lady. They die. Look at verse 23. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? That's a great question. Like I thought of that when my father's second wife passed away. I'm like, wait a second. 
When my dad gets to heaven, will he hold two hands and go, I love you wives, that doesn't make sense. Now the Sadducees were a little different than the Pharisees. They were the Jewish upper class. And they were the priestly group who liked to go alongside the Roman government and they favored, that, they favored them in a way for having teamwork. But sadly, on a biblical level, theological level, they accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament, the, only the books of Moses. All the other stuff we will not accept. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection as noted here. They thought if a resurrection were to happen, that life would be identical to the life today and all the problems that we have today would be a part of that life in the afterlife. Thus, if you had seven husbands, then you'd have seven husbands in heaven and they hoped to prove that the resurrection of the dead was impossible. And they wanted Jesus to stumble over something very hard in the Mosaic law. So the Sadducees give Jesus a hard argument. They're kind of pessimistic about it. Now Jesus gives them a puzzle. Take a look at verse 35. Whose son is the Messiah? Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Since David himself calls the Messiah, and he quotes here, My Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Jesus turns now to his opponents and asks him them two questions. Kind of like, okay, to reveal their ignorance of Scripture. Here the question Jesus really is asking is, why does David call his son Lord? How is this possible? The understanding of the Messiah would be, yes, there is someone coming from the line of David. He will be a human. He will be a descendant of David. But the D- Davidic Messiah cannot be greater than David. David's the king. Who can be greater than the king of Israel? How can David's son be his Lord? This question sounds confusing and seems like a contradiction. All right, let's go to the next one here. Material prominence. As he taught, verse 38. Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and greet greet with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats of the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. Jesus not only exposes their biblical ignorance, but he condemns them for showing off their prompt arrogance and how they wanted to be treated as first class. They wanted prestige, and they disregarded even the poor around them. Oh, the dangers of exalting yourself in the presence of God, right? So that's what Jesus does. He, he's got all this kind of tricks and traps. He throws them curveballs. They, they're throwing him some stuff. Let's see now 
how the master, the great teacher, responds to these. Now, instead of being trapped by the trickery of these people, Jesus teaches about himself and the beauty of God. So let's go back to the first story. With the tenets parable, he teaches judgment, but also the kindness of God. Look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenets and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Look at verse 12. Then the chief priests and the teacher of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against him. But when they were afraid of the crowd, they left him and went away. The parable of this tenets is like a prophecy against those who he was talking about. They were just like Israel in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5, who killed the servants and the prophets of God. See, often this would happen. Yet, in his great kindness, the great patience of God, He continues to pursue humanity and he gives his one and only son. Isn't that a huge blessing? So even in the midst of this judgment, we still see the heart of God. And soon, they're like the wicked tenants who would insult God by killing Jesus. We're in Passion Week here in the book of Mark. And soon they're going to bring a big insult to God by taking Jesus to the cross. Jesus amazingly gives this parable knowing his death is right around the corner by the hands of these leaders he's talking to. And it shows how much love and patience and kindness he has compared to how much unredeemed people will hate God. It's interesting this here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the... This is a passage that people would sing during the Passover on their way to Jerusalem. And the stone is this critical part. Yet even though they are soon to kill Christ, the cross is coming, they will not get away with it. Judgment is coming. And what kind of God would give his own son. I love Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's his kindness that what? Leads us to repentance. Let's move to the coin. With the coin, Jesus teaches about ownership. Again, remember, they wanted loyalty. Jesus teaches about ownership here. But when Jesus, so verse 15, in the middle of verse 15, when Jesus... Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a coin, Maris, and let me look at it. Notice how Jesus doesn't have one, but he has them bring one. So they're digging through their pockets, trying to find one. They brought him a coin, and he asked them, whose image is on this? 
And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Just as our coins have a symbol on it, knowing either what country or what president for us, it's presidents we have, you know where it belongs. For them, they had Caesar's image on it. And history shows that Caesar loved his own image and loved his coins. This was an issue of ownership. The coin had the image of Tiberius Caesar. But Jesus goes, yeah, if that's got the image of it, give back to him what is his. What do we bear? We bear the image of God. Thus, we belong to God. Jesus didn't fall into the trap of picking one of the two categories, either to be a revolutionary kind of person against the government or going, yeah, I side up with the government. Instead, he took the opportunity to teach that we can both fulfill what God demands and also, at times, what the state rightly demands. What they wrongly demand, of course not. The coin was Caesar's and should be given back to them. And since they provide the coin... It shows we have to give it back to the government. Give and obey ruling authorities as long as it does not claim for itself the right of that which belongs to God. Let me say that again. Give and obey the ruling authorities as long as it does not claim for itself the rights that belong to God. We obey even if we don't agree with the speed limits, right? Okay, or we may not agree, oh, taxes are being raised again. Or the requirements that don't violate Scripture. Yet more importantly, Jesus is like, you know what? Fine, pay taxes. But the real issue here, Jesus moves the government from not loyalty, but ownership. What belongs to God must also be returned to him. We bear the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And what belongs to God has supreme value and authority. Thus, we must devote ourselves wholly to God. Or as Pastor Aaron mentioned in his sermon last week, full-fledged commitment to righteousness. The stuff of earth, sure, give it back to the government if you want. But we belong to God. Now let's go to verse 24. With the resurrection, which is a tricky one because they wanted to trap him, he teaches about the promise keeper. Jesus replied, you are not in error because you, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Oh, are you not in error, sorry, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, take a look at this. They will neither marry nor be given into marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. There's not going to be marriage ceremonies up there. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read the book of Moses on the account of the burning bush? How God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So to counter their attack and their view on this stuff... He also uses the teaching of Moses. He's like, okay, you're using the book, 
some of the books that, that Moses wrote, I'm going to do the same thing. He goes to Exodus 3 to show that God is the God of the living. The patriarchs, guess what? They're not dead. They're still alive in the presence of God Almighty right now. Thus, there is an afterlife. God has the power over death for resurrection. And one of the problems with the Sadducees assumed that life in heaven would be the same as life on earth. You know, honestly, we don't know all the differences. I don't know how it's going to be like in heaven. But Jesus tells us that marriage will not be a part of the life to come. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Not sure what it's going to look like, but I know this. My love isn't complete here yet, but then when we see him face to face, we will have perfect love and it will work out. Jesus and other parts of the Bible say heaven will not be like life on earth. Listen to this out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The resurrection is very important, and Jesus uses Moses to contradict what they were saying. Dead is not dead when it comes to those who are in Christ. The resurrection is real and is central to our faith. And we'll talk more about this as we have weeks to come, coming up to Easter. All right, verse 37, the Messiah. Since David, verse 37, since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be the Son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Again, Jesus turns to his opponents to expose his own identity. Jesus uses one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, and this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the Old Testament. He knew the Messiah would come from the line of David. Everyone agreed with that. They had that part correct. But they only understood him at a human level. David said, guess what? The Messiah will be also my Lord. The psalm reveals the nature of the Messiah and Jesus himself. He would be greater than the king of David. The answer is that the son of David also is the son of God, which baffles them. The only way David can call his son Lord is that if the son is divine. Christ is the royal Lord and king. That's why it says here, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool, footstool for your feet. Now they didn't understand this fully until the resurrection, which we will unpack this more in the weeks to come. The last part. Jesus teaches not about all these great possessions we can have to be prominent, but this is a matter of the heart. Look at verse 4. Yeah, they devour widows, verse 40 here. 
They devour widows' houses for the show of lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw large amounts, but a poor one. In fact, when you put it in there, it would make a sound, almost like a bell. You'd put money in there, it was made out of a way so you could hear it being tossed in. Kind of like, unlike our box back there, you can't hear money falling in, but it would make a sound. So people put large amounts, and look at how much sound I'm making. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling the disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus exposes the religious leaders going out. Yeah, they're just all about, look at how prominent I can be where this widow has given from her heart. You can make quite a display when you give in a public area. And you can do some pretty harmful things when you think you've got power and prestige in the church. And you think it's all about you. Here is this widow. The most vulnerable becomes the most valuable. What she gave was a sacrifice of worship. She gave all she could. And God is not impressed on how much we give, but first and foremost, it must be given from the heart. So let me close in this. Take a look at our chart here. There's many ways that people tried to trick Jesus. Many ways they wanted to trap him. He threw them some curveballs also to expose, do they even know scripture? Do they know who the Messiah is? And in his great teaching, he doesn't get trapped into what they did. Instead, he exposes them and shows himself to be this great Messiah. To me, out of all these little stories here, my favorite one, personally right now, is the first one. We deserve judgment, right? But God, in his goodness, in his kindness, gave us his son, who was killed, taken to the cross, Oh, but the power of the resurrection, amen? That's what brings us life. And that's the life we need. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. And I love how you expose the religious leaders in a lot of these little stories here. Either by how they try to trick and trap you and how you gave a parable or talked about Psalm 110, the Messiah. Lord, I want to pause 
and say, Lord, if need be, expose us. May we meet the real teacher. May we see the kindness of God by giving His one and only Son to take the place where I deserve that true judgment. Not only did He die, but He rose again. You truly are the royal King, the royal Messiah. You're the beautiful one. You are wonderful. And Lord, we have one more song to sing. And I pray that we would sing it from our hearts. We long to see you someday. And that day will be great. Perfect love. But until then, we're broken vessels. Help us love. Help us to be more like you. And the greatest way is to see you more as you are revealed in Scripture, to worship you with our voices, with our hands, with our feet, as we humbly seek for all glory to be given to you. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.